This is a conversation with Dr. Fadi Bardawil. He's an assistant professor of Asian and Middle Eastern studies at Duke University, and he's the author of the book Revolution and Disenchantment, Arab Marxism and the Binds of Emancipation. I wanted to have this conversation with Dr. Bardawil because his study of the 1960s Arab New Left, and especially the Lebanese New Left of that period, evoked curious comparisons to what protesters in Lebanon are having to face today as well. The experience of the Lebanese New Left offers insights into how intellectuals struggle through the questions of theory and practice, and of how to transform societies despite all their contradictions. As you'll hear in this conversation, Dr. Bardawil, who is of the Civil War generation, is very much in conversation himself with the generation that came before his. At the same time, and for different reasons, I, as someone from the post-war generation, am in conversation with the war generation through Dr. Bardawil. As such, we managed, hopefully successfully, to have three generations of Lebanese briefly conversing with one another. As usual, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at FireThesTimes and on Instagram at TheFireThesTimes, and you can also support it on Patreon or on BuyMeACoffee.com, the links which are in the description. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Joey, for your interest in uh, my work, and thank you for taking the time to read it uh, in these turbulent times. Uh, I'm trained on the PhD level as a cultural anthropologist, and before that I had an MA in sociology. I've, for a long time now, uh, around two decades, I've been interested in one uh, main theme, which is basically the relationship of uh, cultural production to uh, political practice and political engagement. Uh, around 20 years ago, I started this research project and it ended up in uh, an MA thesis in the sociology department at the American University of Beirut, uh, which uh, traced the trajectory of the communist Lebanese uh, musician and playwright uh, Ziad Rahbani in his relationship to uh, the Rahbani's inheritance as a heir to uh, Fayrouz and Asr Rahbani and in relationship to the other politically committed leftist musicians who were around at the time uh, most the most well-known ones uh, that you may recognize are people like Khaled al-Habr, Marcel Khalifi, uh, Ahmed Kabur, and some other people who were big then, but not so much, uh, no longer now, Al-Kawras al-Shabi, etc. And the idea then, which I pursued later on, was to try and think the different mediations and relationships between again, as I mentioned, uh, political engagement and practice and fields of cultural production. Uh, my PhD is in cultural anthropology. I pursued, continued pursuing this, this idea, but I moved from an understanding of, of culture in its relationship to aesthetics, which is what was my project in uh, the MA thesis, focusing on plays and music and radio shows and moved towards interrogating the relationship of theoretical production to political practice. Uh, roughly speaking, since, uh, since my sort of PhD, 
work I have been working in a triangle of which consists of intellectual history, political anthropology, and critical theory. So my work is sort of located in the parameter of these uh, three three traditions, because part of my interest is literally in how can we rethink contemporary Arab thought, but also how can we think of contemporary Arab thought, and I will say more about that uh, later, in its relationship to being embedded in certain political parties and political practices. And the question of critical theory comes into the foreground because I'm interested in how can we uh, develop a critical theory of power uh, in our in our societies, one that takes the specificity of the multiple lo- multiplicity of logics of power into into being. And what I mean by critical theory is not only the strand of theory that was produced by the Frankfurt schools, such as uh, Adorno and Horkheimer and people in their orbit, as Walter Benjamin, but I include in that the tradition of postcolonial theory, uh, and namely the, uh, the, I mean, the tradition I sort of work with and think about is mainly the Indian subaltern studies tradition, as well as uh, the work, the uh, tremendous work inaugurated by the work of Talal Asad and in Talal Asad's wake, uh, Edward Said. Okay, thanks for that introduction. So to start with a contextualization of the topic of our discussion, would you mind explaining a bit why you felt it important to go back to the 1960s to excavate uh, the lost archives of uh, what you called, or what is called, I think, the new Le- the Lebanese New Left? Uh, sure, sure. I mean, you know, this uh, this project, like, like all other projects, uh, sort of takes shape as you stumble through uh, different pieces of material and the end product does not basically resemble what you started with. I started with uh, an interest in thinking about the ideological, what I then called the sort of like ideological movement of former 1960s leftists into more liberal positions, uh, particularly in the wake of the invasion of Iraq in 2003, when the the Arab press was talking about a, sort of using a catch-all categories to refer to some uh, journalists, thinkers, public intellectuals as Arab liberals, liberalion Arab. So, and a lot of these uh, Arab liberals, so to speak, that were basically part of the sort of conversations then had leftist backgrounds. But then I sort of, as I sort of uh, met some of the militant intellectuals I was interested in meeting, hearing their uh, stories about their life trajectories, and also uh, stumbling upon an archive that I did not, I did not know existed when I had started the research project, which is basically uh, the archive of the underground bulletins of the Lubnan Ishtiraki Socialist Lebanon, which is the Marxist group I ended up focusing on mostly in this work. And the archives were, as is the case in a lot of cases in the Arab world, was preserved by uh, individuals. So it was a, basically a private archive. In that case, it was preserved by Ahmad Baidoum, who's a distinguished Lebanese historiographer amongst other things, but who was also a member of Socialist Lebanon. So he was the 
former comrade, so to speak, who uh, had preserved most of the bulletins, and he gave me access to all of his personal archive that I read and was uh, interpolated with directly and sort of decided to sort of think through it seriously. Now, why, why for our present, why excavate this archive for our present? I think there are three major themes that sort of, for me, structure if you want the sort of the critical yield of bringing that archive and analyzing it in and for our present. Uh, and roughly speaking, you could say that these three themes are uh, one is historical, the other one, uh, the second is political and the third is theoretical. So I'll, I'll say a few words about each. Uh, historically, I think that 1960s generation is, is a fascinating generation in its own right particularly in the Arab world. You know, you're, you're, we're thinking about people who were roughly born between the late 30s and the mid 40s. So they were around six, seven, ten years old when the Palestinian Nakba took place in 1948. They're, they were in their early teens or around 10 years old when the Egyptian revolution happened and when Nasser basically uh, took power in its wake. So it's a it's a it's a sort of it's a story of a generation that really lived through successive seismic transformations of our modern Arab history, in a time which was very very much ideologically saturated. So so you can th think about the sort of dialectic of political hope, and disenchantment and defeats they've lived through. So think about, you know, sort of opening up your eyes to the world. And, and we're talking really, we're not talking ab about sort of like ideas, but we're talking about experiences, you know. So many of these uh, intellectuals I've interviewed sort of say that their first childhood memories are of Palestinian refugees sort of arriving in Beirut in 1948 when they were like, you know, eight years old, ten years old, and, and seeing the refugees like and sort of basically collecting uh, going from neighborhood to neighborhood with bags and sort of, you know, sort of collecting some uh, donations for them, such as food, batteries, blankets, etc. So we're talking really about a somatic experiential memory that's embodied in these people's sort of trajectories. We're not talking about the attraction just of uh, anti-imperialist politics on paper, but we're really talking about some more, you know, you have to sort of put yourself in that generational perspective of basically, you know, sort of shivering from joy when you're sort of like hearing Nasser's voice nationalizing the canal in 1956 and you're 15 years old, something like that. And, and of course, the setbacks as well, such as the huge setback that not, is not really discussed that often uh, today, which was basically the rupture of the union between Syria and Egypt. The union took place in 1958 and it was the sort of rupture and Faisal took place in 1961. So roughly, uh, this was the first very important setback to the project of basically Arab nationalism before the 1967 defeat, which then became a very, very important historiographical marker for trying to think through the history of contemporary Arab thought and the trajectory of these intellectuals. So basically the historical, the historical arc of the book, because the book has a, 
has a critical project, but it also has a historical story, and it's trying to do both at the same time. The historical arc of the book is really one of trying to think about the experiences of a, of a generation that, wa- that moved, if you want, that moved from nation to class to community, by which I mean they moved from basically being interpolated by Arab nationalism to becoming basically class Marxist critics of Arab nationalism when they became Marxists in the mid-60s to basically the moment of their disenchantment with the left when they became critics of basically communal solidarities. What I mean by communal solidarities are sectarian, regional, kinship solidarities. Or some of them, in the wake of the Iranian revolution, uh, became attracted to Khomeinist politics, which are basically politics of sort of cultural decolonization and authenticity. So what you have really is an arc of people who in their lifetime moved again from nation to class to community and or religion. And that's a fascinating story because it encapsulates a lot of our post-colonial predicament. So that's the historical that's the historical arc of the book, and that's why I think it's important to excavate the experiences, the writings, and basically the archives of this 1960s generation that lived through all of that. You know, for someone uh, like me who's born in the first uh, month years of the Lebanese civil wars in the wake of 1975, uh, you could imagine that it was a very, very different time to be born into and to be raised into, in terms, especially in terms of sort of like political hopes and the sort of thinking about open horizons and revolutionary horizons. So when you're, you know, when you're 10 years old in 1985 or something around, around that, it's very different than being 10 years old in the mid-50s. In terms of in terms of political hope and thinking about how that structures your generational location uh, politically I think it's it's important uh, on many many levels uh, one of them because I think there's there are two readings two political readings of of this history that I uh, seek to avoid and I think uh, are problematic in their own way. Uh, one, one is the uh, melancholic reading, which is basically a reading of a history of decline, which is basically the 60s was the golden age of uh, the left and of international solidarity and everything afterwards is a history of decline. That, mel- that melancholic reading of sort of like being attached to it's melancholic in the sense that you cannot let go of the object you're attached to. And they're basically attached to that moment in the 60s, and then everything else becomes insignificant in the present. And the sort of mirror image of this sort of golden age melancholic reading is a, partic- uh, is a liberal and Islamic triumphalism. And I say liberal and Islamic triumph because both the liberal reading and the Islamic reading uh, are triumphalists in the sense of saying, well, I mean, why go back to these leftists of the 60s? You know, obviously they were defeated, obviously they did not produce anything. From the Islamic perspective, you can, th- you can say that obviously, you know, Marxism is a foreign import and, you know, you realize that that foreign graft did not work in our societies. If you're a liberal, you would say, I mean, look at what happened 
in the sort of Soviet bloc and Eastern Union. So between a complete disparaging of this experience as a full-on uh, failure or defeat, and between a complete fetishization and melancholic attachment to it, I tried to carve a path in which we can sort of critically uh, inherit, if you want, their, the dual legacy of this 1960s generation, the legacy of both revolution and disenchantment. And this became especially important for me after the first wave of Arab revolutions that were ignited into 11. Because as I was, was, as I was writing this book, uh, you know, this question of revolution and disenchantment was uh, no longer a sort of archival story, but it became literally a story of the present as we witnessed the first waves of the Arab revolutions and then the waves of counter-revolutions in their, in their wake. And it basically occurred to me that really in and for our political present to think of a previous generation who had gone through this dialectic of hope and despair is very, very uh, important as an antidote against public amnesia and as an intergenerational conversation. Now that the question of revolution has been opened up again, but in a different form. So this is the political kind of, uh, you know, sort of impetus behind uh, the book. And third is the question of theory, which is basically how do you read how do you read the archive of critical and revolutionary arab theory and how do you read it without overdetermining it in its relationship to the west i e how do you read it beyond that sort of reading that have become very normalized in the wake of Edward Said's Orientalism, which is to look at Arab intellectuals and to sort of test their discursive assumptions to see whether they're self-orientalizing, whether they're westernized thinker or they're autochthonous ones or not. How do, you, how do you sort of get a sense of the project they were trying to fashion without banishing them or banishing their legitimacy by saying that they sort of like, oh, what they're doing is just reproducing colonial taxonomies or orientalist assumptions, because I thought that this is not a way to sort of like have a conversation with the past. And this was not a charitable reading. And this was also a politically problematic reading that sort of looks on from the perspective of the present as having a theoretical superiority to the past without any reflexive position of what makes us in the present basically sort of superior, theoretically more enlightened than people in the 70s or in the, in the 60s, just because we read one or two books uh, more that were published in the meantime. And it seemed to me that there is something here that in a way is reproducing in practice a historicist logic that it's criticizing in theory, i.e., it criticizes some of these thinkers for saying that, you know, we are not modern enough. So it's a historicist critique, while in a way, while their critique of them as theoretically unsophisticated or something like that reproduces, reproduces this kind of sort of like lagging behind critique that they're doing. Now, why is this important? Because I think it's important for, uh, for also attempting to not reinscribe the, the colonial divide in, do, in, in dealing with theory. I.e., what I mean by that is very simply trying to think, to not reinscribe the fact that theory is only produced in the global north 
and the global south either produces facts or local native informants for the factories up north that produce this theory. So I wanted to also theoretically avoid that and to actually in a way show that there is a complexity of this sort of like critical tradition which was a very transversal tradition in the sense and what I mean by transversal is that it's not interdisciplinary it's trans transversality I, it, these thinkers were not thinking about how do we put cultural studies in conversation with history but rather they were thinking if our present if this is the, these are the questions we're interested in in our present, what should we read? So we, you could read Bourdieu, you could read Ibn Khaldun, you could read Lacan, you could read Fanon. But the question is that the readings were geared towards an intervention in the present, not towards an academic exercise in bringing disciplines together. And I wanted to try and capture, try and try try and capture that, and try and you know move again beyond this colonial divide that sometimes you get a, you see this sort of colonial divide and very. Um, implicit ways in some of the, you know, some titles of articles or books, you know, like imagine a title, you know, that of a book which says something like, you know, reading, reading Althusser in Ras Beirut, you know, and that, that's the kind of thing I want to avoid because that reading Althusser in Ras Beirut is sort of saying implicitly that, oh, look, there's something curious about reading this universal global thinker in this particular location, which is Ras Beirut. And I was trying to say that there's, there's nothing to be excited about, uh, about reading Ras, Ras Beirut because he was, these kinds of texts were always writ, read, written and translated and commented on. You know, so the idea of trying to sort of make an event out of something that I was wanted to sort of show was there was was also at the heart at the heart of it you know another way of thinking about this is sort of like how i tried to sort of include someone like edward said as a character in the story i'm telling and not as the theorist that would frame uh this generation's basically uh lives because if you look at your know, books about contemporary arab thought that are published in english for the euro american academy Edward Said is never treated as like an Arab intellectual and his trajectory is sort of excavated in that way, but he's treated as a theorist whose theories in a way frame other intellectuals. So I wanted to sort of avoid again this inscription of who's the theorist, who's the local intellectual, who's the person you cite to frame other people who are the people who are framed, so to speak. Uh, especially that historically this was not accurate. Edward Said was in conversation with... Uh, and friends at some point with some of these intellectuals that I sort of discussed in the book, such as Sadiq Al-Azam or Fawaz Trabulsi, who ended up being uh, also, you know, a, a good friend of his and also his translator into Arabic. He translated out of place. He also translated uh, basically on, a, I think, the late works that Said published. So, so in a way, there is a particular implicit ideology in deciding who's who's the Arab intellectual and who's not and who's the theorist that I wanted to sort of implode from the inside as well by sure of showing that these analytical frames are in a way themselves sort of like if you want complicit in reproducing this sort of colonial divide. This is particular this is politically very important, especially that Arab thought has been for at least, you know, a hundred years produced from the Arab world and in Arabic and 
from outside the Arab world and in languages other than Arabic. I mean, you can think of, you know, people like Mikhail Naime and, and Khalil Jubran and all these early authors that were in the States for a long time and were producing in Arabic and in English. But you should also think, you could think about the Palestinian diaspora after 48 and then the Lebanese diaspora and then more recently the Syrian diaspora after the Syrian revolution in 2011. So in a way, Arab thought itself is at times exilic, at times diasporic, at times produced from home. So there is a way in which we should, I mean, I was trying to think through this question of multiplicity of languages and multiplicity of places without sort of like the pitfalls that I tried to describe. That was a very long, I think, answer to your question. But that's, I think these are, these are the headings I'm working with. The question of history, the question of politics and the question of theory. Uh, that was an excellent expose into all of this. Thanks a lot, actually, for taking the time. You know, wh while talking, um, while listening to you, I, w I was I couldn't help but reflect on this uh, notion of this kind of intergenerational uh, conversation. Because as you mentioned, you're uh, you're excavating the works of a previous generation, and I'm sitting here as the person from the next generation, the post-war generation, being born right after the, the war ended. And I just couldn't help. That's why, like, there is this question I'm going to ask you now. I just couldn't help but think of, like, I read the book and I absolutely loved it, uh, like, genuinely. And it's one of those books that I feel like I'll definitely revisit uh, in, the in the near future as well. And so the question was, like... Um, Shagara, who's uh, one of the co-founders of Socialist Lebanon, and Ahmed Baidoun, both of them uh, saw former comrades of theirs leave, uh, sorry, leave uh, left-wing causes to join uh, either sectarian groups or maybe just retreat altogether from politics. In other words, like uh, from what I understood, in, in some ways, political sectarianism trumped class-based solidarity, which is obviously the underpinning of this whole worldview. And it's something that I've seen in some of these films, like uh, We Were Communists, I think, if I remember correctly, mentions that uh, one of the ex-communists uh, ended up joining Hezbollah, another one ended up joining the Lebanese forces or something like that. I forgot the details. But based on your own experience, having go uh, gone through these archives now for, for the past decade or so, how would you... Um, uh, ref so what what were your reflections based on those readings of the Lebanese New Left's archives? How would you assess the current dynamics today? Do you see some so, some similarities, some uh, echoes maybe, or some radical differences, or maybe you know a, a mix of all of those three? That that's that that's a that's a great question. But I wanna I wanna ask you what exactly do you mean by uh, dynamic today? And then I can, I think that would give me a clearer sort of perspective of how to answer your question of the sort of multiple routes one can exit from leftist militancy uh, into. Uh, because I can talk about the past for sure, but I, because you ended with the question of the dynamic today. So that, yeah, I want to try and relate both of, you know, my historical work in the past to what you mean by the dynamic. Absolutely. So I'll I'll try I'll um, give a bit of background to kind of situate it a bit more concretely. I was one of the or early organizers of the 2015 uh, Youth Think Movement. I left it at some point uh, to to do my studies abroad, and in the early uh, well the the recent uprising, 
I, I was just a participant uh, documenting, researching a bit of journalism here and there. And one of the, in between those four years, which I, I find to be really um, pivotal uh, to myself, to many of my uh, friends around me, uh, usually activists who are as experienced as I am, if not more so. And there's always this dynamic, this tension that I feel we, we haven't, or we have this unease uh, when it comes to sectarianism, we don't fully understand or we don't fully know if you want what to do with it. It's kind of like the elephant in the room most of the time. With the 2019 uprisings is the first time that I know of that, or it did happen before 2015, we did see it even 2011, 2012, we did see a bit of it, but 2019 was really, so October 2019 was really uh, the, the point where, for me anyway, it's the first time that I saw so many people um, so, openly and so confidently chant stuff like Shabi Rida Scott and Nizam or Kilon Yana Kilon. So the people want the downfall of the regime or all of them means all of them and have explicit anti-sectarian uh, messaging, like very, very explicit anti-sectarian messaging. And even with that uh, explicit anti-sectarian messaging, we immediately started seeing within the first month, I mean, in addition to the attacks, obviously, by um, sectarian uh, party supporters or whatever we want to call them, uh, in addition to all of that, within, you know, after a month or so by November, I, I would usually start it after November 22nd, so Independence Day, we started seeing a sort of a, um, how would I describe it? We became a bit more afraid or a bit more timid when it comes to openly calling these people by name. So the warlords, the sectarian oligarchs and so on, because we felt that, and I'm saying this as an interpretation, other people might have a different interpretation, of course, but from where I was standing, we sort of started feeling maybe subconsciously that we are, we have been, we are alienating too many people now because we are attacking these people. So naming, you know, naming Nasrallah, naming Birri, naming, naming Jaja and so on and on and so on. And when I was reading your book, I couldn't help but see some parallels. And again, very limited, uh, different times, obviously very different context. There are certain shocks that are not the same. So the Nakba isn't the same as the dissolution of the, the, the union between Egypt and Syria and isn't the same as 67, isn't the same as the civil war. And for the same reasons, uh, it isn't the same as the 2011 uprisings, obviously. But the shock for me as someone who is both Lebanese, part Palestinian, and who has more importantly followed Syria uh, much more closer than, than any of the other countries in the region, uh, recently anyway, there was always in the back of my mind this kind of feeling that, um, um, how do I describe this, that history is, no, that, that's, a different, that's a, a wrong way of putting it that we are being overwhelmed by structures, by ideologies, by ways of being, by ways of interpreting the world, all of these things combined. And we, the new ones, the new generation, haven't really had much time to either learn from the previous generation's mistakes, because mainly we don't know them, we haven't read about them most of the time, some have, but you know, most haven't, and so on and so forth. So this is a background, a bit of where I'm coming from with this and how what my positionality with this would be as someone who grew up in post-war Lebanon, now is studying post-war Lebanon, which inevitably obviously includes uh, the war itself, a bit of the pre-war, but not as much. 
and there's this sinking feeling in a sense that you're digging the archives of the 1960s uh, as someone who was of the 1970s and 1980s generation. And here I am of the 1990s and early 2000s generation reading that book. And it just feels like at some point, like there's a bit of a circular um, uh, motion happening, if that makes sense. Did I make sense in terms of the contextualization? Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Joey. This is very, 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 very helpful. Uh, I mean, I hear exactly what you're what you're trying to get at. As you mentioned, it is a huge question and it is, uh, in a way, an elephant in the room. And one way, before I say a few words about uh, the historical trajectories of this generation and then go back to the present, mm -hmm. the, the main really, the, one of the big questions that has been a question which is not only a Lebanese or an Arab question, but was, has been a question that a lot of Marxists has de have dealt with across generations, which in Lebanon uh, mostly takes the form of sort of sectarian solidarities, but, uh, but I would say also regional and kinship and family loyalties. I mean, the sort of focus on just sectarianism, I think, occludes in a way other infranational solidarities and loyalties, uh, is the question of what is the status of attachments that are not considered to be emancipatory attachments in a revolutionary project, i.e. what is the status of, uh, you know, in the Marxist tradition, this took the form of nationalism, you know, national, nationalism versus class solidarities. And in our sort of Lebanese case, most of the time it's the question of sectarianism. But that, and, and this generation tried to deal with it in very different ways. Tried to deal with it in very, very different ways. I mean, the idea is, is it possible to have, for example, a political project that is not predicated on sort of assuming that everyone that is part of this project is going to be secular, i.e. You see, because the, the, there's a, the, as you mentioned, from an activist's perspective, the dilemma is, is very, very transient, which is if you want to interpolate the largest number of people possible into, into the political program that you are advocating, where, where, where are the lines you draw between accommodating certain subjectivities and certain attachments and certain solidarities? And, and where do you say, I can no longer accommodate these attachments, subjectivities, and solidarities, because if I do, they're going to overtake my project. Do, do you get what I'm trying to say? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, so it's always a very, I mean, how, do, I mean, which is why the, uh, there's a, the last part of this book is really about thinking about Ibn Khaldun and Gramsci, because it is really a question that sort of like, you know, you can think with through the question of Gramsci. How can you create a counter hegemony to the hegemony that's basically the system is putting forward and and how can you 
in doing that not come across as being someone who's uh, sort of disrespectful of particular forms of attachments that people have. I mean, because if you, I mean, what, what do we mean by sectarianism is a very, very fraught question. Do we mean as some kind of belonging into a community that sort of like fashions people's subjectivities? Do we mean by it a certain political identity? Do we mean by it participating in a, in a, in a clientelistic system? They, these are not all the same. Sometimes they map onto each other, but sometimes they don't. And, and the question of subjectivity is mostly thought, should, should be thought through as like, uh, not as an on-off switch, i.e. like a on-secular or like on-sectarian switch, but rather as a question of a spectrum and potentialities that are basically can be activated in one way or another. Like the question of hegemony, and this is something that we saw very, very clearly in October, in the sort of like in the trajectory that unfolded starting October seventeenth, two thousand and nineteen. The fact that you can have people change, and then you can also have people regress if you want to think about it in the in the in the other direction. So the so the question is, is very very difficult to to deal with. That the generation I dealt with. In order to become part of these Marxist groups, these militant intellectuals and militants had to leave their initial communities, i.e. had to leave the political parties that were hegemonic in their own political communities. So they had to say, let's say if they are a Christian from you know, Mount Lebanon, they would have to say, okay, I am not joining the Falangists, I am not joining the Ahrar, I am not joining any of these parties, I am joining, let's say, the communist the Lebanese Communist Party or the Organization of Communist Action Lebanon. Now, so after some of these, some of these militants ended up joining, go, joining their communities back, some of them ended up sort of like, which is not the same thing, ended up converting ideologically to an Islamist position. And for, uh, for some, of these, some, some of these people, it entailed a personal religious conversion. People like Roger Assaf, for example, the famous basically a playwright. So, so in a way, there, is, there are different trajectories that people have. Sometimes people, they move back to the folds of the communities that they had left for a secular ideological project. Sometimes they move from one ideological project to another. But the question, the question of basically, the question that, I mean, that fascinating th- the fascinating sort of, I think, insight of this 1960s generation is that when, when dealing with sectarian loyalties is that, you see, they were dealing with sectarian loyalties uh, in, uh, in the very, very crucial space of organizing in factories, i.e. at the point of production. And, and there, the crucial insight they developed is that these form of solidarities are very malleable that basically you you could sort of marshal them for the workers' interests, but also they could be marshaled against the workers' interests. So in a way, there's a particular so there's a particular resilience to these to these sort of like forms of, of sort of sectarian attachment. And there's also a form of non-teleology that's inscribed into them, i.e. 
the only sh thing you can be sure of is that when you're dealing with them, it, they are gonna, their force is going to be sort of reproduced whether you take them, you push them towards an emancipatory project or not. I'll give you a very small example. So, uh, for they, the way, for example, they can enter into relations of production is, let's say, by having workers in a factory from a particular sect, but then having uh, the foreman, let's say, that's responsible for them from a different sect. Or basically... Uh, the sort of uh, the owner of the factory sort of giving different wages to people from different villages or different sects or something like that so in a way then you can have let's say workers mobilize for their own rights but that mobilization for their own rights could be sometimes articulated on these sort of forms of sectarian solidarity so in a way if you're thinking about workers getting their own rights, that could be, quote-unquote, a good thing. Yet what's happening is that, they, that it's the form itself that's reinscribed. So the idea that I'm trying to basically just... There's two ideas I, I, I mean, I'm trying to sort of push. One is that we have to sort of be clear about what do we mean when we talk about sectarianism. And, and how is this different from basically being someone who's secular or being someone who's religious? I.e. not to conflate sectarianism with a certain religious subjectivity. Because I don't think they're the same. But also how to think about the question of sectarianism as, again, as I said, as a personal attachment to a particular way of life or a, a, a political identity that sees in furthering the interest of the sect its main goal and sees other sects, quote-unquote, as threatening that. And sectarianism as part of a patronage clientelistic, clientelistic system. And in thinking about these three things, the, the main question is, is there a possibility to develop a political language that will interpolate people from different, say, sects and bring them together? without necessarily, you know, without necessarily sort of having the, the, the grievances that this political project is pushing forward seem by another sect to be a sectarian project. Uh, and that's, and that's a very, and that's a, that's a tall, that's a tall, that's a tall order. You see, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's it's tricky. It's very it it it's very it's very tricky, and it's also. I mean, the only thing, I mean, the pessimistic side of the equation is that you see that these sectarian forms are very resilient across history. Like like you can fill them with different content. You can be you can be you know a sectarian. 
politically and you know arguing for a welfare state you can be a neoliberal and basically be articulating your sort of neoliberal agenda but also articulating it with some kind of sectarian formation you know so there's so there is a resilience to it which you called uh, which i think is what you meant by structure uh, and and in that way if you want to do a very you know a sort of an analogy which is from a very different register you can think for example about uh sort of orientalism as a structure of racialization and inferiority as having a very similar kind of resilience that can take on board anything and digest it so for example you can have uh, Darwinian Orientalism, you can have a Freudian Orientalism, you can have a liberal Orientalism, you can have an Orientalism that's basically doing, you know, things like uh, pinkwashing or basically green imperialism or something like that. But you see that there's a structure there that could reproduce itself and take on board different positions. So in a way, but sectarianism has that, has that sectarian attachments, if you so, so to speak. Have this resiliency, but and but I do not think. Uh, I think that to succumb to a culturalist position in which basically, to say that we are doomed to uh, a repetition because of our culture, uh, is the utmost is the negation of politics, and is basically a metaphysical position that's not warranted, even though. Historically, these forms have been very resilient. Uh, it's it's just basically saying that there is no there is no end in sight to try and think of a political sort of project that is no longer that would basically not be divided according to these lines, and that would not lead into the kind of form of violence that sometimes these divisions lead to in terms of communal civil strife. So. Uh, so it's a, again, it's a, it's like a long answer, but it's basically. I think the answer is in trying to think through. Uh, trying to think through a po- different forms of political practice, uh, by by which I mean that. I don't think a better theory will save us, but I think maybe a theory that sort of like comes out of thinking about political practice and trying trying things out is uh, in a very dialectical way would be would be something which would be helpful but uh, but I do uh, I mean what you said about again your activist years and how that rings true to you uh, rings rings true to me as well as someone from a different generation who uh, in the 90s were as part of generations of students and universities were interested in thinking the question of the left and thinking about having a conversation with different generations but also people from different sects and from different regions so that you do not end up reproducing the sort of ideological sectarian contraption where you know where you could say something like the majority of the right would be cushion and the majority of the left would be you know Muslim or something of that sort. So so that, that so that the ideological and the communal 
in a way, so to speak, would not be... Because this is the problem. When the ideological agenda becomes articulated on a communal constituency, it's the communal constituency at the end of the day that's going to overcome the ideological agenda. Yeah, I think we talked, uh, we talked a lot about this. <laughs> no, um, I'm, I'm, I'm gathering my thoughts. You, you gave me a lot to think here. Uh, Dr. Fadi, uh, really, uh, is there anything that uh, you wanted to say that uh, I didn't ask or we didn't have time to talk about? Uh, no, we, we, we had, like, in our exchange, we had a... You, you mentioned something to me about, like, why do I say... And we can, add, we can end with this. It's a very sort of quick answer. Why, uh, why do I say that, you know, for, uh, for these thinkers, it's... In, uh, uh, why do I think it's important to say that they moved away from this sort of, like, language game of compares, comparing Arab and Islamic values with Western ones? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and let me say a few things about that. But what I mean by that is that, is that if you look at uh, a lot of work uh, that is done uh, you know, in, by post-colonial sort of like uh, thinkers or ideologists or the Arab ones are not an exclusion, you always have this sort of like question of the West as an ideological question. You know, whether it is basically uh, thinkers who are modernization thinkers who really want to get rid of whatever they think is, you know, quote-unquote, backwards culture, or the opposite, whether you have uh, nativists who think that basically uh, we need to go back and recapture our authenticity against basically modernity, which is a project of westernization in disguise. And uh, the thinkers I'm working with, I think we're not operating on this ideological register of us versus them, authenticity versus modernity, uh, our values, their values, uh, you know, foreign thought versus sort of like authentic foreign thought. What they were interested in is developing something which is, I think, uh, I mean, has, I mean, I'm interested in thinking about and which is basically, and people in the South Asian concept, uh, in the South Asian context, have thought of, people like Partha Chatterjee has thought about, which is how do you move away from the discourse of ideological values into trying to develop, if you want, a critical social or political theory of the operations of power in the post-colony. Because you can, you can stop... You can either play the ideological game and say, you know, our values, their values, etc. Or you can basically play the kind of uh, epistemology critique of Orientalist discourses uh, game whereby you say, well, uh, this theory is Eurocentric and it cannot understand, you know, basically... uh, our societies, our politics, etc. But I think that's very, I mean, I think this, first it's a very boring game. And second, it's not, it's not, I mean, because it's been done and it's very easy. It doesn't take much sort of critical thought to come up with it. You know, you just put the sort of thing into the machine and it comes out directly. I think the more interesting question is after you do this negative critical labor of saying Western, so to speak, or whatever, universalist social or political theory is not one that adequately can sort of conceptually uh, apprehend the realities we're living from. Fine, okay, that's the negative move. Then the positive one is, okay, can we, is there, what are, what are, can we develop a critical 
idiom of the operations of power in our societies. And why do I say power? Because I want to move away from basically culture. And I want, I want, uh, I want to basically get a sense of can we develop conceptual tools that adequately diagnose the multiplicity of the operations of power in our societies? And, and this is why I say, in their trying to think about the log- uh, for example, in Wadahshara's attempt to think the logics of subjugation that are at the heart of communal sort of like civil wars, ones which are at the opposite of Gramscian hegemony, because you do not seek to win over your enemy ideologically. You just seek to either subjugate them or destroy them. You don't want to convert them. You're not interested in, you're not interested in reforming their subjectivity. You're just in, interested in having their leader, whoever their leader is, be subjugated to you. But how, how, how the leader himself deals with his or her you know, subject, it's up to them. So, so in a way, it's it's trying to trying to get trying to 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 think with these thinkers. It's not necessarily to adopt their theories and to say this is the theory we need now, but it's to actually try and move away from these two registers I outlined in the beginning. One is the register of ideology and value, the West and us, and the second one is the register of basically another register of the West and us, which is basically how Western theory does not work. Uh, the question is, yes, if it does not work, then, you know, what works? Or can we try and develop something that works? And uh, that's, I think, yeah, that's, that's one thing I wanted to sort of uh, to mention. Thank you, like, really very much. This has been a very, very interesting conversation. Uh, I'm going to reread the book very soon after this conversation uh, and I definitely urge everyone to do so and I will link it in the in the description and in the show notes as well. Fadi, thank you a lot for your time. Thank you, thank you Joey. Thanks again for your interest and for reading the book and for thinking about these questions intergenerationally. That makes three generations of people thinking about them. Thanks so much. <laughs> My pleasure.